Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. If you have been in the evening services, you know that we've been slowly working our way through Daniel. And we've gotten to the parts where it's a little bit more challenging. And I, as I was studying this, I thought, should I, should I do something different um, for preaching in Advent? Or is there enough here that we can connect Daniel 8 to Christmas? It's a bit of a challenging um, task, but I, you can tell me at the end whether you think it worked or not. Regardless, God's word will be preached, and that's the important thing. Like Pastor Ellis, I have to say, um, the outline, uh, point two, we're not going to do point two. I was going to, I thought a little review might be helpful, and as I was working on my sermon, I just thought that will just be overload. So we will be skipping um, point two. Let us now, we'll, we'll, let's go ahead and pray before the Lord, and I will begin and read the first half of Daniel 8, and then we will finish reading the second half at a later point. Oh, great Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in many ways, through uh, letters, through prophecies, through songs of praise, through uh, pictures of the future that, that look strange to us, through history. In all of these ways, you show us not only your plan, um, but your will for us and your love for us. So as we approach a passage that is further removed than most from our lives. Would you still by your spirit show us how powerful it is, how much it can speak to us today? And would you be glorified and we changed as we hear your word? Amen. We'll be reading Daniel chapter 8. Just so you know, when it talks about a horn, a horn symbolizes a power and a ruler And when it talks about the glorious land, that's talking about Judea, Jerusalem, and where where God's people lived. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the providence of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he came at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. He cast him down to the ground and trampled him on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken 
And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. This is God's word. Well, we've begun Advent. Thanksgiving is over. <clears throat> Black Friday is done. Cyber Monday will soon be a thing in the past. And now we are switching to Christmas. <clears throat> and one of the big themes of Christmas is that of peace. <clears throat> you know, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And everyone tries to kind of buy into that and, and kind of be a little bit nicer about them and contribute to that peace. But peace from what? When we think about Jesus bringing peace, what is it that he brings peace from? Is it peace from your work and life? Peace from creditors? Peace from noisy children? Sickness? Conflict? You could ask your friends, what, what is the peace? This passage in Daniel shows a part of a great and terrible war, and it's a war on earth that mirrors the war in heaven. And the world powers control and oppress God's people and attempt to stop them from serving God. And we're going to examine this passage in Daniel today and see what's going on and see how it's really a little picture of the larger war that's going on and why it's so important for Jesus to come to the world in the first place. Really, when a Christian asks the question, peace from what, there's another question behind it. Why did Jesus come in the first place? Right? We have to ask ourselves today in America, you know, did, did Jesus come so that we could have a, a Christmas meal with, with lots of presents or a, a nice home with picket fence and quiet and solitude? Now, that would be the American dream. And while there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, and there's some good things, that's not the peace that Jesus came. If that's why he came, then he wasted his life. The peace we celebrate is so much deeper than that. It's the future end to all wars, the defeat of Satan. It's the future removal of our sins to enjoy God and to be what he's made us to be. And that's what the book of Daniel is telling us in a nutshell as it zooms in to give us a bigger picture of the peace that God has. And in chapter 8, God does something surprising. He had been talking on a big scope about the world history about these four beasts that were similar to the four statues in Daniel 2. And now he gives you a brief history of Judea. That's what this is. This is a brief history of Judea between the exile and the coming of Jesus. Well, what was it that, what was that vision all about that Daniel received? Well, if you're confused as hearing it, as, as you might have been, 
let's finish the chapter because Daniel was confused and he also needed to get an interpretation. So we'll read from 15 to the rest of the end now. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came nearer where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdoms, when the transgressors have reached their limits, a king of bold face, one who understands a riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even arise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel receives a little bit more understanding or interpretation, which he still doesn't understand because... These are all things that are in the future. Now, looking back, we can see that this is a prophecy about God's people in the Holy Land after they come back from their captivity and what would happen to them. It said in the first of the chapter that Daniel was transported to Susa. So he was in Babylon. Babylon was, was the capital of the empire right then, but Susa would become the capital of the Persian Empire. And so in his dream, he's transported to the capital of the next world power. And that's the picture of the ram with the two horns, the Medes and the Persians. They come up and symbolize together the Persian Empire. And God says they will become great and they will rule for a while, but there is another empire who will come. And the goat from Greece, of course, is talking about Alexander the Great, how he and his phalanxes from Greece and Macedonia swept through Palestine and down through Egypt and then through Persia and even into India. But if you know your history, Alexander the Great died fairly young in his 30s and four of his generals carved up his empire into individual kingdoms. And so this is what this prophecy is talking about. It's talking about world history, but especially as it concerns God's people. And then it narrows it down to one person. Who was this person? Well, he's called a little horn. 
And if you were with us in the evening, you, you can look and see that this little horn of chapter 8 is different than the little horn in chapter 7. In fact, I encourage you to look at your daily Bible readings and you can kind of work that out on your own. But he is this little horn and he was a king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. What a great name. Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he lived 200 years before Jesus. He was part of the Seleucids. He was one of those four kingdoms. And he originally was about 188 BC before Christ. He was sent to be a hostage in Rome because there were treaties where you would sometimes give a a descendant to go over there as part of the tribute. And he was there for about a decade. And then he was brought back and through political intrigue, some, some good fortune and several murders, he becomes king of this area in, in 17, uh, 175 BC. And this, this area that he ruled also controlled Jerusalem and the place where the Jews lived. Well, what, what can we learn about Antiochus? Well, you can learn a little bit about his name by the name Epiphanes. It means God manifest or God revealed. Talks a little bit about how he thought about himself, which fits with this boastful horn who raises himself up to heaven, even challenging God himself. Um, Just from a historical point of view, he was a very successful general and politician, but he always needed money and he was always attacking other nations. And he was trying not to attract too much attention from Rome because Rome was becoming the new superpower. And he was there and he knew you better not mess, mess with Rome. So what Antiochus was doing is he was carving a new empire in Egypt. And in 170, he went down and he made some conquests there. And he needed money. And so he installed a new high priest. Sadly, at that time, the high priest was now more like a political office. It was the most powerful person in the Judea area. And the high priest, as long as you had a little bit of a claim to be a priest... You didn't have to be the direct descendant of line of Aaron. If you had enough money, you could get the ruler to appoint you high priest. And so that's what one of the priests did. So Antiochus appointed him priest. And then this priest forked over a whole bunch of treasure from the temple, including some of the sacred vessels. Now, just imagine if you were a pious Jew and your high priest did that. You probably would not be very happy. Approval rating pretty low. So one of the high priests who was deposed a year after 170, when Antiochus was down in Egypt, he led a revolt and took back Jerusalem for a small time. But Antiochus saw this as an insurrection and he sent people to crush this revolt and put back his high priest. And many, many people died. But that wasn't the end of the In 168, he went back down to Egypt for a final conquest. And when he was there, he was met by a Roman ambassador. And the Roman ambassador saw his army and he said, go no farther or your battle will be against Rome. And Antiochus said, well, give me a moment to think it over. And the Roman ambassador drew his sword. They were on the beach and drew a circle around him in the sand and says, if you leave this circle without giving me an answer, we are at war. Maybe where we get our phrase, line in the sand. Antiochus was wise enough to know you don't mess with Rome. And so he went home with his tail between his legs. But for whatever reason, we don't know why, was that he was enraged at at having lost. 
he at the same time ordered widespread persecution. He sent his taxmen to go and pillage the temple and desecrate it. They offered a pig on the, sacrifice, on, the, on the altar in the most holies. Anyone who practiced the Sabbath or other pur- purity laws was persecuted and killed. And this became the first world became the first religious persecution that's been recorded in world history. And it was a time that was extremely formative for the Jewish people. And in fact, eventually there was a group that resisted and at a great cost drove him out about 64, 164, which eventually became the, the leaders called the Maccabees. And they ruled for about a hundred years. Now, why the history lesson? Um, you know, actually, before we get there, I just want you to think about this. Daniel was written in the 500s B.C. That's when it was written. Um, All these events that God foretells fairly clearly happened over 300 years later. This is a case of fulfilled prophecy. Now, if you talk to um, scholars who are not Christians, and there are even some scholars that would be Christians that would take this view, but... If you talk to them, especially who are not Christians, they would say, well, the answer is actually really simple. Uh, Daniel wasn't written by Daniel. It was written during the time, and so they're just kind of prophesying history as it's happening. Um, I think there's very good arguments for taking the book of Daniel at its word, and that the bulk of it, at least, was written by Daniel. It may have been edited a little bit later. But that God wrote down these truths 300 years before it happened to his people. And that should give you confidence in his word as you go to it. God is speaking to you. There is supernatural revelation in the Bible. But okay, so why, why is this here? Why, why, does, why is there a whole chapter on this small five-year period of Jewish history? It's because God wants you to see this as a window into all of history. This, you see how that Daniel records that the angels, they record it as a cosmic battle. This Antiochus, who calls himself God revealed, is not just oppressing the Jews, but he is pushing himself against the... He's, he's competing against the prince of hosts. He's pr- competing against God himself. And when it says he sweeps down stars from heaven, stars can either mean in Daniel the saints or the angels. Perhaps here it's both. But it's saying by attacking God's people, he's also bringing in the angels into battle and attacking them too, somehow engaging with the heavenly forces. It's saying the oppression that happened here was real and it's, it's a spiritual battle and actually as we will see it's a snapshot of which happens time and time throughout history as Satan oppresses God's people. And the message for Daniel and the people in exile is that when you go home it's not going to be all over. In fact, God will give this little man a power to rage and oppress you and it will be terrible for a time but it will also be limited it says 2,300 days that the, um, the sanctuary will be desecrated. Um, could be six-year period from when Antiochus started to when it was reconsecrated. It could just be saying this is a long period of time. He's going to be in control. It's going to seem like a long period of time, but then he's going to be gone. And God will prevail. Okay, but why preach on this for Christmas? Right? Besides that, it's the next passage in the Bible. Why, why preach on it? For the beginning of Advent season... Isn't Christmas about peace? Well, yes, but the Bible says that Christmas really is happening in the middle of a war. 
So let's turn now to Revelation 12, the passage that we read from the Apostle John, and where it talks about how Jesus comes to earth. And he talks about his coming in a way that would surprise many people today. Because today, many people say Jesus this is pretty much a sideshow. Santa Claus has pushed him out. But if we do think about him, it's on the cuteness of the baby, right? It's all about the relationship between Mary and Jesus, the mother-child relationship. Um, that is true, and you can see that in, in Luke and, and that specialness. But, but here, John talks about something else. He talks about a war between this dragon with seven heads and ten horns. That's from Daniel 7 who sweeps stars from heaven, that's Daniel 8, who comes against this woman. The woman stands for not just Mary. Many people think, oh, that's Mary. Well, it's actually the whole people of God from whom Mary comes. Remember the moon and the sun and the stars, the dream that Joseph had about, about his brothers, his family. It's God's people, and the dragon is Satan who was warring against him, against her, right? And in fact, what it sees here is that the Satan who's warring against the woman was actually the power behind Antiochus, who was persecuting those Jews so mercilessly in that three-year period, way back before Jesus came. So from this passage, how would you tell the Advent story then? Think about how strange this is. There's this vast war in heaven. Satan is fighting against God. And as Advent dawns, he's about to land the knockout blow. He's about to send his shock troops in, right? Parachuting behind enemy lines to deal the crushing blow. Oh, wait. Wait, he sends a little baby. And in this picture that is larger than life, the baby is to be born. And the dragon's waiting just to eat it. It's done. Finished. Think about how Jesus came into the world where Herod, King Herod, playing the role of Satan's puppet, executed, put to death all the little baby boys in Bethlehem because he didn't want that rival king. And Jesus must flee with his parents to Egypt. Some hero this is, and yet it says in, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, that he is a male child who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. We sang about that. We sang that phrase, rod of iron, today. That's, that's the promises of the Messiah, the Son of Man who is going to come. So this baby is born into this crossfire, this cosmic war. But in this war, God protects the child, and he grows up, and he defeats the dragon. And all the saints who follow him and claim his blood are part of that army. And so what does the dragon do? He's thwarted. He pursues and makes war with the saints of Jesus. When you realize that, you see this is just like the little horn, Antiochus, persecuting and trying to crush the faithful Jews. And then when you see that this is a background of war, you can understand the advent so much better. You can answer that first question, what is peace? It's the triumph of the little baby who grew up and dealt the dragon the death blow. So how should we celebrate this season? You notice in the outline, how should we celebrate Christmas? I'd actually like you to, I'm going to be a little provocative here, and then I'll back off. How about you put a line through Christmas and then write in Advent? How, how can we celebrate Advent? Now, there, there is nothing wrong with Christmas, except that Christmas culturally has been so confused with salvation through stuff. Um, of consumption that I would just like us to talk about 
Advent today to get us thinking about this a little bit differently. There's three ways that in light of this, we should celebrate Advent. And the first is keep a wartime mentality in the midst of the celebration. Right? For us, Advent is the turning point of the war, but it's not the end of the war. Right? Christmas is actually to us still a reminder that although Satan is defeated, there's a war still going on. There is a conflict going out there, and, and the war is not finished. John finishes with the reminder in verse 17 that the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Right? This is still an ongoing thing. So we can celebrate that Jesus has, has brought us peace, and in so many ways we can talk about how he's freed us from bondage of, of addiction and, and oppression and depression and given us meaningless to, uh, meaning to our pointless lives. Otherwise, we can celebrate these things. We can say, yes, we see the light dawning, and yet we know the war is not over yet. Satan is still out there. At the risk of dating myself, I'll... I'll this quote from the Christian rock band Petra, which they have a song which is voiced in their refrain. This means war and the battle's still raging. War. And though both sides are waging, the victor is sure and the victory secure. But till judgment, we all must endure. This means war. And that's, that's where we live right now. Well, if, if that's the case, we have to ask ourselves, how do you celebrate Advent with a wartime mentality when we're hardly even persecuted in America? Right? I mean, for our brothers and sisters overseas, it's like, there you go. Sermon finished. Pray, Lord, help us. But now there are, I know people who, who are uncomfortable, who risk things, who are excluded for their faith. I, I know you're out there. I know you, you are starting to feel that pinch and that displeasure. But yet still... We generally are quite comfortable. So how do we have a wartime mentality? And this is where it gets personal. God's word gets personal. You need to flee materialism. Because materialism says that we're living in a peacetime, right? We're just, we're consuming everything for ourselves and, and everything's great. But we need to flee materialism. Kids, what's materialism? I mean, there's, there's various kinds of materialism, but I think the American idea is that the purpose of life is stuff, and especially to get more stuff, right? You just, stuff is about getting toys, games, when you get older, more money for a bigger house and bigger cars, and, and we consume and buy because we can. Um, not because I need to, but because it makes me happy. And just watch the ads out there. That's, that's the message you get. And if you ask someone from another country, especially someone from a poor country, to come and just you know, camp out in our malls, watch, watch our Thanksgiving parade and our TVs, I'm not even I'm talking about the church here, but just America in general. And if you would say to them, what does Christmas mean to America? If you just got the broadest pulse, what are we celebrating? Who is our Savior? I, I think they would say it's, it's salvation through stuff. Things make you happy. Here's the danger of materialistic Christmas today in our culture. Your stuff can put you to sleep, spiritually. But Advent says you are locked in a life and death struggle right now. The war is still going on. But it's 
hard to see that we're in a spiritual war right now. We're not being persecuted like the Jews under Antiochus or, or the early Christians under Nero. The dragon's tactic today is to get you and me to sleep by just being comfortable where we are. You deserve this. It's all about you. Come spend your money, your time, your joys and delights. Get wrapped up in these things that will preoccupy you. Now, kids, I remember being in your place. Um, God has actually given me uh, really vivid memories of being a child, maybe because I had overall a very happy childhood, from which I'm, I'm just grateful to the Lord and my parents for. But I, I remember how much I looked forward to Christmas. And if, you, if you're tracking me right now and you're hearing me, you might be a little nervous. Start talking about, you know, got to watch out for stuff. Because at least when I was growing up, we didn't have, my parents were not well off, we were happy, but we didn't have a lot of resources, and I was a Lego guy, that's what I did. My stuff was Legos, and I loved it. Um, and I planned it all out, and you know, Christmas was when I got a lot of my stuff, and so when people started saying, hey, you know, watch, watch about materialism, I would get nervous. And in fact, I remember one time, uh, one of my aunts, who was very loving, but strict, I think her kids would thank her for the way she raised them now. I, I know them and I, they love their mom. But she was kind of strict. And I remember one time she said to my grandparents, you know, if you don't have enough money, you can, don't worry about giving the kids gifts for Christmas. I remember just thinking, she's a mean person. What a terrible person. I, I actually get along with her and enjoy her quite a bit right now. Right? Um, all right, so let's just get out there. Americans give gifts at Christmas. That's a cultural thing. And you know what? That's okay. What is not okay is that when we get more excited about the gifts than the Savior. Right? Jesus did not come to give us more stuff or the newest conveniences or an easier life. Those things are good or bad depending on how you use them. Don't get caught up in that. Jesus came to give us true peace. I will tell you, there are many people in the world who have accepted Jesus who are dirt poor, that have a radiant peace that has nothing to do with what they do or do not have. Right? And so, we need to just look at this. Are, are we falling into that materialist trap? Even you think about the way we spend our money at Christmas. Adults, you know, <clears throat> as, you, as you shop for the people around you, your, your kids or even yourself, as you, as you buy on Black Friday, um, Cyber Monday, do you, do you ask, you know, do I need this? I, I just bought a pair of shoes recently, um, kind of swapping out my slowly my shoe wardrobe. I'm going away from that sneaker or dress shoe look completely. I even wore sneakers to Presbytery sometimes. It's just kind of who I was. But I thought, you know, I'd like to expand my wardrobe a little bit. And there's a shoe company I really like. And there was these shoes 70% off. I thought, I'm going to snag those. I probably won't wear them for a while, but I'm going to snag them. And I did end up buying them, but a thought occurred to me, you know, I, I do have several other pairs of shoes in my closet. Do I really need this pair? I've got money in the budget, right? it's not going into debt. But do I need it? As a steward, can I, can I justify it? And I eventually said, yes, I think this is a good deal, it's a good buy. But do you have those conversations? And today the impulse is just get it because you can. You know, parents... Look at the way that you spend for your kids and say, am I giving gifts to my kids in a way that I'm healthy? Am I going into debt? That's, that's actually not loving your kids. That's damaging your family. The, the, 
I can't tell you what the, the right number is. It depends on your situation, the age of your child, where they're at. Um, but what I can tell you is that if you graph giving, it kind of goes like this over the years, right? Um, 2016, the average American parent spent $422 per child. That's up from $217 just five years earlier. So there's this arms race of we need more and more and more and more things to be happy. When will it stop? Um, what is appropriate? I can't tell you that, but I just want to ask you, when it comes to the way you love your kids, are you doing it just because that's how everyone else is doing it? Are you getting lulled into spiritual sleep? Or, or do you give gifts intentionally in a way that can help reflect the atmosphere of why Jesus came in the first place? Uh, I, I know this is hard. I know that you know, you're, it's, it's hard not to keep up with the arms race. I know as a kid, I bought into the lie that stuff means love. I don't know how old I was, but I was probably somewhere between four and eight. And we did the Christmas circuit and we visited our parents, grandparents. And I went to my first grandparents and they have more grandkids and less pension. So obviously they give less. And then I had a single grandmother who had no one to support but herself and a couple grandkids. And as I went from the one to the other, I said bye. And I said, I'm going to my grandma who loves me more because she gives me cookies and treats and you don't. Now, I think my dear grandparents who pray for me to this day, they probably understood that I was just an immature little boy. Sure, it stung a little bit. And, and my parents quickly corrected me. But do you see how I had bought into the lie that more stuff equals more love? Hmm. Kids, if you're listening out there and you're just saying, man, he's a mean person. I don't have anything against gifts. In fact, I have wonderful memories of tearing apart gifts and spending time building Legos. I love seeing the face on my little son as he rips them apart. But I just want, I want you to see that your joy does not come through stuff. It, it doesn't. As a kid who remembers the good parts of getting gifts, they're nice, they are good expressions of love, but they won't make you happy forever. The joy fades there. My gifts are either broken or, or given away or sitting in a box waiting for Sam to get old enough to play with them. And what I want you to know is the Jesus who came as a poor baby to give you what you needed most. And when you serve Him, that's when you find your joy. That's what Advent is all about. So don't, so don't let the blessings of stuff clutter your joy. Well, how do you do that? Well, there's a simple way. One way that we can break out of this materialistic cycle is just to serve more than you are served. Serve others more than you are served. Right, materialistic Christmas is all about me getting stuff. The Advent is about King who gave himself. Self-sacrificial servants. And if that's what Jesus did, isn't that what we should be about too? You know, if Jesus is the light of the world and he comes in and brings the light in through service, shouldn't we do something similar? Now, we don't bring the light in, but we're a witness to the light. In fact, that's what you saw in the early church. They were an explosion of sacrificial service, even as they were teaching the gospel. Those two things don't fight against each other. So how can you do that? Well, parents, maybe you can have your kids learn service by letting them pick out a gift for their sibling. No. You're a boy who likes G.I. Joes and Nerf guns. What would your sister like? 
And no, she wouldn't like that chain nerf gun so that you can just take it when she's not interested, right? What, what would she really enjoy? You can get excited about learning to give to others even when they don't have the funds to do that. Or maybe you can, kids, you can learn to bless other people. There were, there were old ladies in my neighborhood and when it snowed in Christmas time, we'd shovel their sidewalks, right? Adults, there's, maybe there's ways you can invite people into the joy that God has given you. Whether it's um, your family, uh, something that you, a position at work where you can care for other people. One simple way that we do this as our growth group is we love cookies. So every year the Endure Growth Group makes lots of cookies. But what we do is say, how many people, um, how many plates would you like to give to your neighbors? And we make it a point to give cookies to our neighbors. So that even in our festive blessing, we want that overflow to go out to other people. We give them a little Bible verse, decorate it, and just wish them a Merry Christmas. Of course, those are just small ways. But when we invest our lives in serving because of the gospel, whether it's Christmas or maybe you're just so busy with Christmas, you're legitimately tied up. It's something you'd rather do all year round. When we do that, that allows you to break the shackle of stuff. Right? You're practicing the gospel. You're serving others. You're showing by your advent, your actions, that actually advent is true. That this king came into the world to bring light. And we who have experienced that are now showing and shedding other people back. You can say that this life is not just about me. I'm following my Savior. He's won the war. I'm waiting for his return. But in the meantime... I want to serve more than I have served. And I'll experience that true peace. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the incredible blessings that we have in America. It's astounding when you read in history or look around the world right now how wonderfully we've been gifted. But Father, we also know that you... Have, you do demand more responsibility of those who have been given more. Lord, could we celebrate Christmas this year with, with joy, without guilt? Um, would you also show us creative ways to make sure that Jesus is at the center of our celebration and that by serving, we can be reminded that there is a war and we're waiting for our King. It's not all about us. And so we pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.